Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you ever noticed the shrill tone that permeates public discourse in our time? It seems like everyone is on a hairpin trigger, ready to rage and vent at their ideological enemies. What is a Christian to do? Should we stand up for our beliefs, morals, and politics? Should we disengage from conversation about controversial issues altogether? Especially with the holidays approaching, many of us are going to be in situations with family members and friends and neighbors who may disagree with us quite passionately on a number of different issues. Is there another way? Peter Miano, my guest for today, shares how respect, courtesy, and love can navigate us through these stormy waters. After earning degrees from Boston University, Union Theological Seminary, and Harvard Divinity School, and becoming an ordained United Methodist minister, Miano founded the Society for Biblical Studies, which coordinates trips to the Holy Land and other interesting places where conflict abounds. And I think as you'll hear his life story, you'll see his unique qualifications as a bridge builder to give us some pointers on how we can have more more fruitful and godly discourse in this polarized time. Here now is episode 369, Civil Discourse, with the Reverend Peter Miano. All right, well, welcome Peter Miano to Restitutio. So glad to have you here today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, well, we met in 2018 in, what airport was that? Uh, Tel Aviv? Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv. Ben, yeah, Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv. And that's, that's, I can't say that about too many people, that I met you in Tel Aviv, right? And uh, you were our guide in Israel for a couple weeks there, a life-changing trip. I encourage anyone else to, to go with Peter if you can. L- let me ask you a little questions about yourself here first before we get really into the substance of our, our topic for today. Uh, did you grow up in a, a Christian home? Could you share a little bit about your your background? Sure. Church life was very important to my parents. It was a little bit not quite orthodox in that my father was Catholic, my mother was Protestant, and I, I and my three siblings uh, were brought up in the Methodist Church, which was just a couple hundred yards down the road. Sunday school upbringing was very important. We rarely went to the Catholic Church, although I did occasionally, and my, my memories of going to the Catholic Church with my father were the place was always so packed that I, we'd be standing up in the back and I'd be, you know, passing out by the time of the, the end of the service. Wow. And is this in Massachusetts? Uh, New Jersey. I grew up just outside of New York. But it was interesting because, um, you, you know, it was a very uh, affirming environment and respectful of the different traditions. And, and, you know, my father went through a lot with his church because he married uh, outside of the Catholic tradition. And actually he, had, he was excommunicated because we were baptized in the, in the, in the Protestant church, in the Methodist church. So that was, uh, that was, it was very important to my parents and it was a very uh, positive experience and um, uh, continued to be through uh, high school, which is when I first felt my call to ministry. Okay, and uh, when you felt your call to ministry, was that, did that lead you right away into uh, going to a Bible college or a seminary, or what was the next step for you? It actually um, was not quite that linear. 
And I ended up going to just liberal arts colleges and, and that kind of stuff. I did most of my undergraduate work at Boston University. The objective was to get a good liberal arts foundation so that I could then study for the ministry. But ironically, what happened, I ended up studying philosophy and, uh, and history, both of which have been very powerful influences. The studies have been very powerful influences. But at the time, at Boston University, it was a very analytical linguistic school. And it really caused me to examine, critically examine some of the foundations of faith. And I ended up forsaking the idea of going into parish ministry. I, I eventually concluded by the time I graduated under my undergraduate work that the church and its theology was, you know, sort of not something that was satisfying for me. And in the meantime, I developed a very hedonistic lifestyle as an undergrad. So, you know, I kind of went in the, in the opposite direction from, uh, from parish ministry. Interesting. So what happened next that uh, caused a, a change here? I took a year off from, uh, from after my undergraduate work, and I, I did some work. And by the end of that year, before the end of that year, the one thing, the most important thing that I learned is that I needed to go back to school. What school could I enter, graduate school could I enter, applying in July? a couple of months before the semester was supposed to begin. And the answer was seminary. And not only did I apply and get accepted, but I was also given a scholarship, a full scholarship. Where's that? That was at Union Seminary in New York City. Oh my goodness, I applied there too. Uh, in fact, in, uh, when did I go to school? Uh, 2000, 2009, I got into BU and Union in New York City. And uh, I had to pick between the two, and uh, BU offered me a scholarship, mm -hmm. uh, a full-ride scholarship, and uh, Union did not. And I went to Union, and I said, look, BU's offering me the scholarship, you know, like, you know, you're going to try to match it? And they're like, oh, pff, those big schools, they can offer all these big scholarships, you know, we, we can't do that. And I'm like, all right, see ya. But it's funny, you had the exact opposite experience there. Uh, so what was that like? Uh, well, you know, with, the, with my parents being of two different faith traditions, they were very respectful and supportive of each other. And it taught me the value of respecting other people, even when there are differences. And Union did the exact same thing. It was a very challenging environment. You know, I was relatively traditional uh, Protestant thinker. And, and, you know, I wasn't even really thinking about going into ministry at that time. I just wanted to continue studying philosophy and history. And that did it. Uh, but it was a very strong experience, very good experience. There were over 70 different Protestant denominations represented in the student body at the time. My faculty were, you know, white, black, women, men, Catholic, Protestant, and the most important thing, I think, is that they were very, very accomplished scholars, uh, a lot smarter than I was, and they were devoted Christians. That was an eye-opener. Uh, so I began to run into uh, mentors who themselves were very committed followers of Jesus, very committed Christians of different faith traditions. And that began to um, sort of prompt some inner reflection and some inner urgings and this memory awakened of my original interest of going into parish ministry. And so that was a very good experience. I ended up doing my, uh, an internship at uh, Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church, upper, upper middle class uh, church, 
also exposed me to more economic diversity than I'd probably encountered any, any other time in my, in my life. Very formal, you know, it was almost like uh, it, they had just, when I started working there, the ushers in their worship services had just stopped wearing morning suits and white gloves. <laughs> this was in that the late awesome. 70s. This was in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, so uh-huh. they were, it was a very formal place. But it was a great experience all around. Very good. Um, and then uh, coming out of that, what was next for you? Because somehow you ended up uh, at Harvard with an STM, right? Uh, that was actually a THM. THM. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when, how did you get from the, here to there? By the time I graduated uh, Union, I had decided that I did want to continue. I had felt uh, this sort of urging that it was, you can't call it anything else, but God calling me into parish ministry. And so it's, it's another funny sort of thing happened. I, uh, you know, by that time I had spent all this time in Boston, I considered it my home. So I contacted the, what was at the time, the Southern New England annual conference of the United Methodist church. And they encouraged me to take a little church as a student pastor, which I did. And that's simultaneously, I started my studies at Harvard. The church was another very interesting exposure to a small rural church north of Boston. The town is called Byfield. It's actually the town that, I don't know if you remember the comic strip, Lil Abner. Some of your listeners might remember it, but uh, it was the, the, the model for that comic strip. And the congregation was at a very different place than I was theologically. They were very conservative, very fundamentalist, and they were also much older. You know, I mean, I had just spent three years in uh, New York City, and this town didn't even have stop sign in it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so it was very, very different. And so God was really putting me in these environments where I was required to engage with and literally in this case minister to people who were very very different and it was hard but it was a very very good uh, good experience and at the same time i started working on my thm in new testament studies at harvard right what was the drive time there between uh cambridge and this uh it was about 50 minutes soup to nuts door to door okay that's interesting so it, our topic today is about public discourse about Honestly, I'm more concerned about Christians than non-Christians, like what Paul says. Who, who am I to judge those outside the church? You know, I'm not really worried about them. They're not going to listen to me anyhow. As a Christian, a real problem within Christianity today, when it comes to social media, when it comes to talking about the other, uh, and I'm not even really talking about non-Christians, but yeah, non-Christians too— people that just think differently, whether politically, economically, intellectually, on different kinds of questions. Tribalism is on the rise in this land, and uh, this is something that that I have seen get amplified in the last few years. I'm sure with your life perspective, you've seen even more so this trend. Uh, share with us some thoughts on, you know, wh- what can we do here yeah, and it's it's a it's a really important uh, topic. I commend you for your interest in it. It reaches way beyond the church and the Christian community, but it's particularly troublesome within the Christian community, which is commanded to love one another. The rest of the secular world, and by the way, you know, I've always had one wor- one foot in the secular world and one foot in the sacred world, but the secular world doesn't have that 
commandment. It doesn't have that. It's a good idea. I wish they did have the commandment, but they could ignore that. But what I find uh, troublesome is that so many pastors don't consider it a pastoral issue when it really is. So I commend you for your, for your interest in this, and I hope anything I have to offer is productive. Yeah. I tell you, um, the tendency I see is homogeneity. And uh, the internet, which I think a lot of us expected, especially in the early days, I'm old enough to remember when the internet first became a thing and we had those uh, dial-up uh, modems that connected with that sound it made. And <laughs> you remember those days? I think a lot of us, like in the 90s, we really thought the internet would help us engage across divides, national divides, across ethnic divides. Uh, what I'm seeing now, Peter, is that people are connecting not with people who are different than them, but only people who are the same as them. And then we're getting into these echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, do, you, uh, do you see that too going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think they call it confirmation bias. And this is a real problem. So rather than personally, my experience has been one of learning, being required to learn how to appreciate variety and diversity. That's what I yearn for now. Most people seem to be gravitating towards those who reinforce their own perspectives. And, you know, the Internet kind of amplifies these problems. Church people bring it into the churches from the secular world, from the outside world. They're getting a lot of influences from media, various sources, whatever their preferred media outlet happens to be. They bring these models for public discourse into the church, wherever they go. And they're not productive. They're, they're counterproductive. Yeah, you talk about um, in this, this article you wrote, which I, I can link in the show notes for this episode, you talked about uh, how the holidays are approaching. And I, I think the holiday in, you had in mind there was Thanksgiving, but we have another holiday approaching, right? Uh, well, different holidays for different people, but uh, the holiday season is a time where we are more likely to be with uh, family and friends, uh, although this year maybe is a little different because of the pandemic. But um, it's often a time where we are with that relative who really thinks differently, and mm -hmm. that, that provides a real challenge for many of us. And uh, I think there are really two typical approaches to dealing with these kinds of relational exchanges. And one is to uh, just not talk about anything of substance at all. So, you know, the classic adage, no politics and religion at the dinner table. And then the other is to go full bore and just attack and, and, and marshal all your evidence and call the other person an idiot for disagreeing with you. So these are, these are really the two models before us. Uh, what, what can we do better than that? You know, because it seems like both of those are equally futile. Right. They are both equally futile. Well, you know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives. So who comes to dinner is uh, you can't really control that. And you can't really control what they bring with them either. Uh, or their styles of conversation. But, and it's not just in family gatherings, it's also in churches. It's anytime people get together, it's also on the internet. You can go to Facebook or your favorite social medium and see people attempting to have, you know, what they think is conversation, but it's really just arguing and screaming at each other. 
And that happens in families too. Families are not a, a, a immune to that, and neither are churches. That, this is why I feel it's, it's such an important pastoral issue, because churches can be that uh, medium for promoting productive dialogue. You, you can't escape diversity. You have to learn how to manage it. When you do, you learn that it's a real benefit. It's a real blessing. God ordains it. You know, when Paul uses the image of the body and its parts, he's describing the different functions of the church, and God creates the church. You know, God creates diversity from the, from the time of creation. So you, you can't really escape it, but there are ways to optimize the, 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 the conversation. Managing differences requires skill. It's not natural. It's not, uh, we, we don't learn it by osmosis. We have to study it, we have to teach it, and we have to learn it. This is where I think the church comes in. This is where I think pastors come in. They're the ones that lead the, the, the growth process. Yeah, I really like your pointing out the text in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the differences between, you know, to one is given this gift and to another is given the other gift, and uh, the body analogy, the foot should say, because I am not a hand, do I not belong to the body? Right, right. Uh, That would not make it any less a part of the body. So we have, I think this is what we have going on, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly within Christianity, but also outside of it, where uh, somebody's saying, look, we're the feet over here. You're the hands. You're not part, you you, you are over here, and we're over here, and we're separate from you. And uh, what the analogy is saying is like, no, you're not. You're, you're different, but you're part of the same body. Exactly. And uh, there, is, there is a real failure to recognize the contribution of those who think differently, who approach life differently. Uh, and, I, and I'm just talking about even within just the church, this is a problem. But uh, as Christians, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Right. And Jesus extends <laughs> that even to loving our enemies. Exactly. Whether that's exactly. national, ethnic, personal, whatever— you know, we, we are really called to an incredibly high standard as yeah. Jesus people, Christ followers, as those who are trying to be authentic and live this out today. And uh, so give us some guidance here. How do we, how can we engage in conversation and do so in a way that bears uh, fruit as opposed to just, uh, you know, fomenting anger? Yeah, well, first of all, let me point out that, that when Jesus says, love one another, love your neighbor, love your enemy. He's not using metaphors. He's not using parables. He's not using allegories. It's not poetry. It's, it's, this is the literal word. And there's no wiggle room. There's no escape clause. Love your enemy literally means love your enemy, no exceptions. Uh, So it's a mandate. And people who are Jesus lovers should take it seriously. Most of us should take it more seriously than we can do. We can't always live up to it. I know that. Personally, you know, I'm, I know these things intellectually, but I'm not always that good at practicing them. That's when grace comes in. That's when forgiveness comes in. When Paul is talking about the body and its parts, he is using a metaphor. And one of the points of the metaphor is that, first of all, being different does not make us other. That's one of the one of the pathogens that's circulating in our families, in our churches, in our country uh, these days is that difference makes us other. That's a dangerous road to go down. That's a slippery slope. and It doesn't end well. 
another thing that Paul is stressing or emphasizing in invoking the, the, uh, the metaphor is that the fundamental requirement in human relationship is respect for the differences. It's not agreement. Jesus didn't say, agree with one another. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you agree with one another. He doesn't say that. He says, love one another. Paul is not talking about the church body or all of our families or our community or our nation all being the same. But he is saying that just because we're different doesn't mean we're other. We are part of the same body. And that's a really important thing for people to teach themselves in your prayer time, in your meditation time, while you're driving down the road, repeat it in your mind over and over again. The basis of human relationship is not agreement, is not unanimity of opinion, it's respect for differences. That's the fundamental uh, requirement in human relationship. Families have to learn this, husbands and wives have to learn this, parents and children have to learn this. It's so fundamental. It's amazing that we haven't done a better job of teaching it and learning it. Too many people have not assimilated it. So starting with the recognition that difference is natural, the fundamental way for man at difference is to respect those differences. Then you can get on to other productive type of postures that you can take, things that you can say. There's a bunch of these things. You can reduce them to slogans. You know, you can reduce them to little mottos that your mantras sort of that you can repeat and teach yourself and practice. And the more you practice these things, the better you get at them. So practicing, for example, the idea that differences are natural and God given is very important. Reminding ourselves of that, learning that we don't have to agree with each other to be in relationship uh, is very important. You know, I, I, I'll tell you a little story, Sean, when I first met John. You're talking about John Shaneheit? John Shaneheit, yeah. It was our very first program together. And I remember we were in Italy, and I remember sitting with a couple at dinner. That, I don't know how we got on this, but they, they knew I was a little different. And, and one, of them, <laughs> <laughs> one of them asked whether I wanted to speak in tongues. And this is not part of my tradition. I don't know how to do it. You know, it's not something that I'm, I'm good at. You know, we talked about the little bit, and they began to be a little bit assertive about it almost as if that was some sort of a litmus test. And so finally I said, let me ask you this. If I don't subscribe to that style of spirituality, does it mean that we can't have dinner together? And, you know, obviously nobody's going to answer no, uh, yes to that question. You know, so it was a way of getting us at the table to realize, you know, I'm different, you're different, I respect your differences. Let's still be in fellowship together. And that's what it comes down to. Well, ironically, that, that very body imagery of 1 Corinthians 12 is where it says, not all speak in tongues. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> you know, it's, in the Greek, it's a negatively front-loaded question. You know, it's a question expecting a negative answer. All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not prophesy, do they? Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, yet, yeah. you know, the yeah. whole point of the chapter is that even though there are varieties of manifestations, there's only one spirit, and that spirit... Uh, can show up in different ways in different people's lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, this this topic we're talking about, you know, I really consider you to be an expert on, Peter, not just because of what you've already uh, shared, but because of uh, all of your travel. You know, it has put you in touch with so many different kinds of people from different traditions of Christianity, 
from Islam, uh, from Judaism, and uh, probably some other stuff I don't even know about. You've really been a bridge builder throughout your your career as a uh, as a travel uh, director. What what do I call you? That's fine. <laughs> What do you call yourself? Well, I'm the executive director of the Society for Biblical Studies. We consider ourselves teachers. Our paradigm is a scholarly pastor and a pastoral scholar. That's how we see ourselves. Right, but you also are uh, you you also push for encounters across divides. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So this is this is really something that you've been practicing and living out and trying to. You know, even apart from uh, the recent political climate uh, during the Trump presidency in particular, where we've seen increases in polarization. Of course, we had polarization before yeah. Trump. Apart from all of that, you've been you've been on this path for years and years and years uh, trying to reach across yeah. divides and maybe not convince everybody to believe the same thing, but at least have dialogue. Right. And respect for the differences. You know, I encounter in the course of my ministry. Uh, say in Israel and Palestine, a range of people with very, very different political perspectives and no place is more polarized than Israel-Palestine. If people know nothing more about the Holy Land, they know that it is a conflict-bound environment. I, I first started studying and examining sort of conflict management or resolution or peace building, whatever you call it, when I was in parish ministry. And the church had grown so much that parishioners were beginning to collide with each other, individuals, groups of parishioners. So we had to learn, examine what was going on and learn skills to deal with that. When I migrated to Israel and Palestine as a United Methodist liaison in Jerusalem, I, I recognized right away that the, the dynamics of conflict in Israel and Palestine were no different than the dynamics of conflict that we find in our churches and our families and what we're seeing right now in our nation. So that's a very polarized environment. I enjoy, I get a lot out of, I learn and grow by encountering people who are different. Uh, and it forces me to learn how to respect those differences. I know that I am never going to persuade somebody who is deeply convinced of their perspective. I might know that it's wrong, but I know that there are some people that I'm just not going to be able to persuade. You can't control everyone, and you the only the best you can do if you want to maintain relationship is to respect them. That's one of the reasons why I think I've been pretty uh, successful in sustaining the range of contacts that we have over there. But one of the the, the first thing is uh, recognizing that differences are natural, differences are good, and another thing is to try to persuade yourself as much as distasteful as it might be that uh, the person you're engaged in dialogue with or even argument, argument with is a person of integrity and worth. That person has the image of God embedded in him. Right. You just made me think of that. The Imago Dei is, is the okay. basis for our belief that everyone has this incredible value that is, is interwoven into their very being by the Creator. Yeah. And it's imperative. Uh, we had... Uh, in response to one of the emails I sent out on this uh, subject, we had a, a, a Zoom conference, and one of the people that participated said, does that mean I even have to uh, respect Donald Trump? And I said, yeah, 
exactly what it means. <laughs> There's no way of getting around it. And the second point to, to, to train yourself that your opponents are people of integrity and worth is extremely important. And this is something that's happening in our country right now, that the polarization does not include recognition that the others, the, the ones that are different, the ones that are on the 180 degree opposite side of the, the discussion are people of integrity and worth. Why is it that people on the left still can't appreciate uh, the fact that Donald Trump is a God-created person bearing the image of God? And why is it? that people that are so convinced that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is some sort of a, a messiah, a sort of a political messiah, you know, why do they have to call the other side libtards? Why are they snowflakes? Why are, why are the snowflakes calling them rednecks? This is, this, this is indicative of people that are in deep conflict. Uh, when you start to uh, label the others and uh, apply a label to an entire group of people that violates the individual integrity of the members of that group that you're labeling. And it doesn't matter whether uh, which side of the political spectrum you are, which band of the spectrum you, you occupy. Nobody really gets that very well in our country. Th this person said, does that mean we have to respect Donald Trump? Yes, it means that. Love your enemies. Does that mean that Donald Trump has to be is somebody that I have to love? Well, I, I don't want to encourage you to think of anybody as your enemy, but if that's how you think of him, especially Jesus said, love your enemy. So, you know, you can't escape that. It's a requirement and it's good for us to learn how to do it. When I pray for Donald Trump or uh, Joe Biden or whoever, Kamala Harris, whoever it happens to be, I, I know that it's not necessarily going to change how they are. But it changes me. And if nothing else, hopefully it makes me a more loving, tolerant, forgiving, accepting person. And that's a that's an important thing. I need to I need that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you remind me of uh, the text in First uh, Peter 217. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Uh, other translations. Honor the king. You know, to think that Peter and Paul says something very similar in uh, his epistles, that they, they teach this radical respect for the evil government of their time. You know, the, the Romans were, uh, were, were pretty bad towards the early Christians. This is the context in which they write these words. I mean, it just blows my mind that uh, they had uh, non-representative governments devoid of any kind of democratic process and that's the context in which we see the words honor the emperor. And it, and it cannot possibly mean like. Right. It cannot possibly mean uh, have emotional affection for. But right. there is a sense in which you can show love and you can show honor to someone that you profoundly disagree with. Yes. Uh, and that, that radical uh, position, I think, is where we're being called to today. Uh, you know, if you're on the left, then you, you had a real opportunity to practice that for the last four years. And if you're on the right, guess what? You get another <laughs> chance right here as the pendulum swings the other way. The thing is, Sean, we never stop having those opportunities. For If there are people on the left that think that somehow uh, a new president is going to make things easier, they need to remember that almost 50% of the voters voted for Donald Trump and vice versa. And Donald Trump is not going away. His supporters are not going away. 
And what happens in four years, the people that voted for Biden, they're still going to be there. So the opportunities for learning these things are going to be with us for a long time. But it's you're absolutely right. It doesn't call us to have affection for people that are different from us. It doesn't call us to agree with them, but it does call us to love them. And that leads to specific implications or ways that we act that out. And one of them is when you're engaging in these sort of difficult, fraught conversations, whether they're in your family, your church, across the country, you have to think of a few things. And one thing you have to think of, the first thing is, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? Are you are you just trying to, uh, to, to vent? You're just trying to express yourself? Great, easy. Any rant will do. But if you're trying to persuade, if you're trying to build community, then a rant is not going to do it. And don't try it. And then you also have to think, uh, what is my relationship to the person with whom I'm having this dialogue? Is it an enduring relationship? Is it a long-term relationship? How long have I known them? Will I ever see them again? You know, when you when you think of some of the sensational things you see in the media, coverage of uh, protests in Portland or, or wherever, where you have people wearing MAGA hats here and Black Lives Matter people on the other side, they're literally screaming at each other. And in that kind of an environment, you're, you're just not going to be able to do much more than rant. And, you know, personally, I try to stay out of that stuff. Ranting seems dehumanizing to me because you're not recognizing the image of God in exactly. the person who exactly. is serving as your whipping post. Right. This ranting and rage posting, as I see it on uh, social media, where somebody's—usually it has a, 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 a form to it. Usually you'll get a preface, a preamble that goes something like, I don't usually say anything, uh, but you know, I, I couldn't hold myself— quiet any longer and then you get like the most vitriolic language that you've <laughs> never yeah. seen this sweet yeah. otherwise sweet person have and they just kind of vent and let go and they they it's awful to see because it first of all it's not doing any good but also it's it, it seems a little embarrassing uh that that person is just like not even able to to engage fruitfully or hear the other side we're talking about uh, taking a straw man out and and just beating the crap out of it. Uh, meanwhile, the person who actually holds that view is is like, this doesn't affect me at all. You don't even know. You don't even understand what I'm saying. This is happening over and over again. And I, I think you're right. You know, recognizing the value of the person you're talking to and putting away that that temptation yeah. to just blow them up. Right. You know, that's really a prerequisite to fruitful dialogue here. So yeah, uh, what else would you say on this? Well, I'd say, you know, there are, there are tactics that people can employ, assuming that your goal is to promote and maintain and cultivate relationship, assuming that the people you're in dialogue with are people that you're going to be in relationship with over the long term, church members, family members. You, you know, you can change church, but you can't change your family. Uh, then you've, you've got to employ some different tactics. And one of them is to find the common ground. And even when this conversation between people that want to wear masks and people that don't want to wear masks is going on, there's still common ground between those people. Somebody who is saying, I refuse to wear a mask, might be saying, I value personal liberties so highly 
I don't want to lose that liberty. Now, who, who disagrees with that? We live in a country in which personal individual liberty has a very uh, high priority. That, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So no matter where you are on the political spectrum, we should be able to agree that personal liberty is important. We might disagree where we should exercise and when we should exercise that personal liberty. But at least you can affirm that point of common ground. And it's important to find those areas of common ground. It's also important, you know, there's another getting back to, you know, biblical slogans or mottos. It's, it's kind of important to remember some of the earliest things we learned in Sunday school, like do unto others as you would have those have others do unto you. I don't like people calling me names. I don't like people screaming in my face. And I am sure as heck not going to use language that demonizes people that disagree with me. That's an important thing to, to avoid, but that comes right from the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto, your, do unto you. I, I don't want people to call me names and I'm not gonna call others names. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline in the moment. Somebody says something, you get triggered. But over time, you know, you, you start by repeating these mantras and internalizing them. Then you can begin to apply them in your uh, real life setting. Uh, and over time, it can become more or less second nature. And I think you'll find, people find that the more they learn to practice these things, the more productive their conversations become. And the more enduring and you know it really doesn't matter where we stand on the political spectrum we can still be in relationship with other each other we have to be in community with each other yeah and then the next one on the horizon peter i see is this vaccine uh you know here here's one of the greatest ironies in as a new yorker that i've ever seen was when the democrat uh governor andrew cuomo became an anti-vaxxer uh which he was for you know, a few weeks there, he said, well, if Donald Trump put out this vaccine, I'm not taking it. I'm not letting it into my. And then, of course, the, the president responded by saying, all right, I'll give it to the other 49 states. You won't, you don't get any. And, you know, it's like it's just unbelievable that, uh, the, you know, the, the left, which is generally pro-vaccine, uh, became for a minute there anti-vaxxers. And the people on the right were like, well, if Donald Trump gave it to us, we'll take that vaccine. And, uh, you know, the, everything got switch back and forth, but uh, I think that's all been worked out now in my state. Uh, they're, they're looking to roll it out pretty soon. But, um, you know, there are going to be people that are going to say, I don't want to take this vaccine, and they're going to have their scientific reasons for it and their questions and their doubts, and they're uh, pointing at various uh, moments in history where vaccines did bad things or did unknown things. And then you're going to have other people just as passionate on the pro-vaccine side saying, look, if you don't if you do not do it, then we're not going to get herd immunity. This thing's never going to go away. And look at all these examples. Look at polio. Look at uh, measles, mumps, and rubella. Look at look at these examples. You know, and this, this thing is right on the horizon for us, Peter, uh, as, as another conversation topic where th- there's a real temptation, once again, to just call the other side names mm-hmm. to, you know, not even consider their evidence, right? But just to roll out, you know, what you have to say, plug our ears and uh, go, la, 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 I can't hear you. I mean, that's really what we're doing as a society, isn't it? We're like little children here. Yeah, yeah. So there's a real opportunity on the horizon for this. And then there'll be another thing after this. 
and another one after that. And the question is, are you going to stand up as somebody who dares to name the name of Christ and be like Christ, or are you going to be like the knuckleheads that are stirring the pot in our own age? One of the most important things of having conversations with people on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, is to allow room in our judgments for facts and interpretations of facts that we have not yet considered. Most of us, myself included, assume that our opinions are right. Who has an opinion that they know to be wrong? But the fact is, none of us can possibly have considered all the different angles. And one of the good things about diversity, if we allow ourselves to be open to it, is that it gives us different perspectives on things that we hadn't considered adequately. And that's an important thing to be open to. Nobody learns if they think they know. Until we know that we don't know, you have to have a, a healthy sense of uh, skepticism uh, before we can really be learners. That's what we are. Disciples are learners. It literally means to be a learner. You know, disciples come from a Latin word which translates the Greek word matetes, which means learner. We can't learn if we know. We stop learning once we know. So to remind ourselves that there's more to know and the value of being in dialogue with people that think differently than me is that they help me understand what it is that I haven't considered yet. So to be open to that is extremely important. And it's, it's not natural, it's not easy, this is very challenging, trying to promote productive dialogue and, and maintaining relationship and maintaining community in the presence of differences. I know what the difficulties are. It's difficult for me. I've been practicing it for a long time. I don't always get it right. It's not easy. People trigger you, you say the wrong thing. You can go down the, the road of uh, retaliation and this, that, and the other thing. You just can't do it. You have to, you have to get out of the situation, arrest yourself, uh, step back, get some perspective, and then you can re-engage. But uh, to remember that there are facts that we don't know. The, the vaccine, anti-vaccine issue is one of those things. None of us, I mean, I'm not a, an epidemiologist. I'm not a, a medical researcher. I'm not a health professional. There's tons of things about vaccines that I, that I don't know. And when I'm engaging with I haven't had this particular conversation with, with anybody yet, but when I'm engaging, if I were to get engaged with somebody who is a, uh, uh, an anti-vaccine person, how do I know what experience that person has had with vaccines? Maybe that person has had some negative experience. It does happen. And I have to be, I have to keep space in my thinking, make room in my judgments for that other person's perspective, for that other person's, ex that person's experience is informing their perspective. And I should, I should be open to learning something. It could be that the person I'm in dialogue with is not correct. You know, who knows? Maybe they have, maybe they're delusional, depending on the conversation that you're having. You could be in conversation with somebody who's literally delusional, but still, you don't know that. If your goal is to maintain relationship and enter into a productive dialogue, you have to be open to the possibility that the person that you're engaged with in conversation has got some legitimate perspectives and you could learn something from those legitimate perspectives. That's how we learn. You know, we, I need people that are different from me for me to continue to grow. I deliberately, intentionally get myself out of the echo chamber in order to hear different perspectives, because I, I don't want to stagnate. 
And I know that I will. I'm already stagnating. Uh, but I, I have to continually strive to be open to learning, to be opening to hearing to what other people are experiencing and, and how it informs their positions, their thinking about things. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your thoughts on this subject, Peter. I feel like we've only scratched the surface and there's uh, so much more to be said, but uh, you know, I, I want to keep this somewhat contained, this uh, conversation. A any other final thoughts you have uh, by way of concluding here today? Remember the simple things. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. I think we need more now than any, any, at any other time. Those simple things. All right. Well, thanks, man, for your time today. You're welcome. Appreciate My it. pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to see you. Well, that's it for this interview. Thanks for listening here to the end. If you'd like to get in touch with Peter Miano, you can do so at the Society for Biblical Studies. I have a link in the show notes, and that website is sbsedu.org. I cannot more highly recommend... Miano as a guide in the Holy Land. Uh, I went two years ago in 2018. It was an absolutely life-changing experience. I was on a bus with 50-plus other people, and everything ran incredibly smoothly. Miano brings in some aspects of travel that other touring agencies are not going to bring in. He's going to bring you to the West Bank. He's going to talk to you about not only the ancient situation, but also the modern situation in Israel, and do so from a gracious perspective grounded in Christianity and the Bible. So I, I do encourage you that if, if you have ever wanted to go to Israel or to the footsteps of Paul throughout Turkey and Greece or some of these other places like Italy that SBS goes, that you would consider going with them. I think they are just really a great organization to, to work with and reasonably priced as well. On a previous episode, introducing the UCA podcast, number 368, that we our last episode, Joe Middleton wrote in saying, I really enjoy listening to Mark. His confidence is contagious and his personality is one of a kind. I have to say, as an oil and gas worker, I've never thought I would hear an analogy about fracking in my biblical theology podcast, but it fits very well, and I hope Mark doesn't mind me stealing it. God bless. Thanks for writing in on that, Joe. Uh, Heather Kay writes in saying, Thanks, Mark, for this interview and for your podcast, which my family and I have greatly enjoyed. Your podcast is very encouraging. My 12-year-old daughter announces each new episode. She loves listening to them. Well, Mark, uh, if you're listening to this, let me tell you, it is no small task to keep the interests of a 12-year-old, whether a daughter or a son, uh, so I guess that's a very high compliment. I don't I don't know that Rest Studio can uh, is is up to the task, but hopefully there are some young folks out there listening, uh, especially through the Spotify feed. By the way, people are jumping on that feed. Uh, they're going away from other podcast apps in their phone and they're getting onto Spotify, which is just fine with me. Uh, but if you haven't checked it out yet, and if you have a Spotify account, why not search for Restitudio and log in yourself? I, I bring that up because the demographics on Spotify tend to be on the younger side than the more traditional podcast apps. But whatever, however you're listening, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so at restitudio.org. And if you'd like to leave a comment about today's episode with the Reverend Peter Miano, you can do that at restitudio.org as well. Just search for episode 369 on civil discourse, and you'll be able to find everything there. 
as far as what we have planned for the future, I've got an exciting series that I am in the process of recording with Pastor Jake Ballard from out in the Midwest in Indiana. He is going to be talking to us about postmodernism and serving as our guide a little bit to understand why our culture is the way it is, how it thinks, and then most importantly, how to engage with postmodern people and other kinds of isms that people have in the background but are maybe not aware of that are driving how they think and how they react in our time. So I think this is going to be a really fruitful series of podcasts with Pastor Ballard coming up in the next few weeks here. So stay tuned for that. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.